0: Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the LSE for this online event, which is part of this year's LSE Festival, Shaping the Post-COVID World, a week of virtual events that are free and open to all, taking place this week until Saturday, 6th of March. And it's about the direction the world could and should be taking after the COVID crisis and how social science research can help shape it. My name is Chris Anderson and I'm a professor in European politics and policy here at the London School of Economics and Political Science. This year the festival is adapting to the the new normal, the next normal, some kind of a normal, uh, with all events being held online and streamed via Zoom and the Festival Hub, which is the online home of the LSD Festival. Make sure you visit the Festival Hub to access all festival content, including our series of live events via Zoom, as well as a series of pre-recorded 10-minute talks with LSE faculty festival shorts, they're called. The full program can be found at lse.ac.uk forward slash festival. So I'm very pleased to be here to introduce our speakers to you today. Uh, We have three of my very favorite people here at the LSE. I'm gonna start with Peter Trubowitz, who's professor of international relations and director of the US Center at the LSE. He writes and comments frequently on US politics and his interests lie in international security and U.S. foreign policy. Then we have Sarah Hobolt, who is the Sutherland Chair in European Institutions and Professor in the Department of Government. She is co-author, among other things, of a new book called Political Entrepreneurs, The Rise of Challenger Parties in Europe. And her interests lie in elections, public opinion, and EU politics. And last but never least, is Florian Foss, who is assistant professor in political behavior, also in the Department of Government, who studies partisan election campaigns with interest in opinion change, political activism, and electoral mobilization. Tonight, the panel will be discussing political polarization within different contexts over the course of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, for those of you who are Twitter users in the audience, please feel free to make use of the hashtag today's events hashtag is uh hashtag LSE Festival. It's very simple, LSE Festival. Uh this online event is being recorded, just so, so you know, and will hopefully be made available as a podcast, subject to no technical difficulties, which we of course know never arise during this world that we the Zoom land that we inhabit. In any case, I'll soon hand over to each of our speakers and then as usual, there will be a chance for you, the audience, to put your questions to the panel. To submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be submitted to myself and I will then pose as many as possible to the speakers in the time that we have. Please let us know your name and affiliation. We're particularly keen to hear from our students, alumni and incoming students, of course, so please let us know who you are. The title of our session is how the pandemic polarized us. Now, one question I would ask off the bat is has the pandemic polarized us? But for now I will be quiet and I'll hand it over to professor Peter Trubowitz who will be telling us about polarization in the United States. Go for it, Peter.
1: Great, thanks, Chris. Uh, It's good to be with you and everyone else on the platform uh, this evening. So um, my charge is to um, briefly discuss how the pandemic has um, changed American political life. Um, And there's a lot to say on the topic uh, and little time to say it in, but in the hopes of sparking some discussion, let me make three points. Um, One, having to do with the pandemic's uh, effect on the partisan divide in the United States. So I'll take up Chris's question there. One having to do with the pandemic's effect on the 2020 uh, presidential contest. And one having to do with the pandemic's effect on America's role in the world. On the first point, um, while COVID has changed many things in the United States, most of the research shows that the pandemic did not drive the nation's partisan wedge uh, deeper. America was already divided along partisan lines. And while there were and remain partisan differences in behavioral responses to the pandemic that is over social distancing, wearing masks, a large Stanford study that was released in October, last October, Indicates that the level of partisan polarization last fall was roughly the same as it was before the outbreak of the pandemic in the United States. Now, that political rift uh, is larger in the US than in other established democracies, but at the end of the day, polarization has parsed the pandemic and not the other way around. This is not to say that it hasn't influenced American politics. It has, which brings me to the second point. In my view, there's a very good chance that Donald Trump would still be president if he didn't make such a hash of managing the pandemic. Indeed, when it comes to the all-important Electoral College, a change of only 43,000, just under actually, 43,000 votes in Wisconsin, Georgia, and Arizona, would have given Trump the 270 electoral votes needed to win a presidential election. That margin just, you know, is smaller than the 77,000 plus votes that cost Clinton, Wisconsin, Michigan, and uh, Pennsylvania four years earlier. Now, political scientists are going to be studying Trump's defeat for years to come, but I'll wager here tonight that one of the things these studies will show is that Trump lost because of incompetence. Not the incompetence of voters and voting machines as Trump would have it, but his own incompetence as a leader. Trump's failure to acknowledge the gravity of the pandemic early on was not due to ignorance. We know that he was aware that it it wasn't going to simply disappear magically. Even if he was not fully aware of how bad it would get if he didn't mobilize the federal government to move quickly and systematically impose best practices such as face masks and social distancing. Trump's failure to basically worst case the pandemic from the get-go is really one of the unexplained mysteries of the pandemic in the United States. And my sense is that it was all about blame avoidance. Trump focused more on how an all hands on deck response to the unfolding crisis would impact the stock market more than on the infection rate and the death toll. And this is why he pushed back, if you will, or pulled back on the federal throttle and delegated as much responsibility as possible to the states so that governors would take the blame for the infection rate and the death count. From the vantage point of practical politics, it was, to paraphrase Talleyrand, worse than a crime, it was a mistake. And that's because Americans were more focused on the infection and death rate than the stock market's ups and downs. In my view, if Trump had done more and done it sooner, voters would have been more forgiving. It wouldn't have guaranteed Trump's re-election, but Trump's failure was a failure of competency. And if there is one thing that still gets you fired in the United States pre-pandemic, pandemic and post-pandemic, most of the time, it's incompetency. Trump's mismanagement of the pandemic isn't the only problem he left in Joe Biden's inbox. He's also handed him something of a foreign policy that commands little respect abroad from America's allies to be sure, but also its adversaries. The problems here are many, and certainly America's poor performance in managing the pandemic, has hurt it in the eyes of world opinion. But back home, the central challenge facing Biden on the foreign policy front lies elsewhere. It is to find a way to reconnect achievements in the international realm to recognizable benefits for average Americans. Trump talked a good game about this problem, but he arguably made it worse. Biden has promised to rebuild support for American international engagement. He's been telling everyone and anyone who will listen that America's back, just in case you haven't heard it. For Biden to make good on this pledge though, he needs to find ways to make what the United States is doing abroad pay dividends once again for a broad cross-section of its citizens. Now this would be difficult in the best of times but the pandemic makes it especially challenging. In my view, Biden has to do several things on the international front to make good on his pledge, including working more closely with allies on climate, China, and human rights. But the single most important thing he needs to do is get the pandemic under control at home and leverage the crisis to rebuild the country's infrastructure, and create more non-tradable jobs for working American families. This will go a long way towards easing domestic anxiety about America's international engagement. The pandemic is a crisis, but like all crises, it's also an opportunity. My hope is that Biden will capitalize on it. And Chris, why don't I leave it there for now?
0: Thank you very much, Peter. That was very interesting, and you got us off to a wonderful start here. I'm going to hand the baton over to Professor Sa Hobold now.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Chris, and thank you, Peter. So I think what Peter said was that uh, polarization in the U.S. didn't stem from uh, the crisis, and I think if I'm now going to move back home to the United Kingdom, and I will go one step further and say not only did the crisis not cause polarization in the UK? In fact, perhaps it brought us at least for a little while back together. Um, and to do that, I'm going to uh, sort of take a, a very short trip down memory lane with you and say, where were we when this all started uh, at the beginning of 2020 and and what preceded that in terms of, of, of public opinion and polarization in the UK? And I'll I'll show you a few slides here uh, if you don't mind Uh, to to take us on that small journey. So let me share my slides with you here. So it's this, the idea is, or my argument is that not only didn't the pandemic polarise us in the UK, perhaps it brought us back together. And what did it bring us back together from? Well, I'm sure you can all remember that when the pandemic hit these shores, in early 2020, the British public had just, the Britain, the United Kingdom had just left, formally left the European Union, but it was not an issue that in any way was settled or over. Britain was highly polarized politically, but perhaps more importantly in the public. Uh, people, a new identity had emerged over the past, over the preceding four and a half years, where people were increasingly seeing themselves as remainers or leavers. Uh, I have a graph here showing that over three quarters of people identified uh, in that way. And that was not just a political identity but one that was highly divisive. Uh, it was also one, I'm showing here another graph that shows that it was one that was at that point in time more strongly held than partisan identities. So people were more likely to see themselves or and describe themselves as a lever or remainer than they were uh, a Conservative or Labour supporter or Liberal Democrat. And they felt these identities more strongly. It also spills over into something that we've seen a lot of in the United States, which is sometimes called effective polarization, which is an animosity towards the other, the out-group, towards those, if you're a Remainer, towards Leavers, and if you're a Leaver, towards Remainers. Now, what happened then when with the pandemic? Well, in some ways there's some evidence that it did bring us back together. First of all, Brexit became just a lot less salient because all of a sudden it was all about coronavirus, COVID and uh, the policy action to, uh, to combat that. There was also uh, across Europe and the world a kind of rally around the flag effect because you had this external threat. And what often happens to public opinion when you have that is that people rally around the flag or in this case also around the incumbent. Now, that meant even in the U.S., actually, Trump became more important uh, in the very beginning of the first wave. And so did Boris Johnson. Um, Also, he, uh, if we look here at this graph that shows government approval ratings in the United Kingdom, uh, the government had been very unpopular during uh, a lot of the Brexit negotiation period and became... Uh, during the first um, uh, wave of the pandemic much more popular. Uh, That didn't last, and that comes back to one of the very important points that Peter made, namely competence or rather incompetence, that as it happened, people start feeling that the government wasn't handling the pandemic in a competent manner. Um, That led to to higher levels of disapproval again. But certainly to start off with, people were very much behind uh, the government. Now, on top of that, what also happened is that even though disapproval uh, ratings started being an increase again, nonetheless, there's actually been a very broad consensus uh, around the government's uh, government policies and COVID. And again, here, I think there's a contrast to the United States, where there's been a lot more divisions in terms of uh, of the levels of support for lockdown and in terms of and, and partisan behavior, uh, partisan divisions also in in behavioral patterns and compliance with social distancing rules. What we've seen in the UK throughout this pandemic is high levels of support for very stringent uh, policies, including lockdowns, including wearing masks and so on, and no real partisan or Brexit divide in that. So really it's not, it doesn't matter whether you're conservative or labor supporter, whether you're a leaver or remainer, generally people are supportive of these Uh, social distancing measures, and generally they are highly supportive of lockdown measures, even though I'm sure we can all recognize that it's not always uh, been a walk in the park. So again, we see going from this divided Brexit Britain to a COVID consensus. And just to end up here, then there's this question, well, is that then the new normal (laughs) in the United Kingdom? Are we over uh, these divisions that we uh, lived with for almost five years Well, on the one hand, Brexit has become a lot less salient, although, of course, it's not entirely off the agenda. And there has been this consensus around policy that we didn't see for several years. But there are also reasons to believe that this consensus might not last. First of all, what we are going to be facing in the next few years, I mean, none of us know for sure, but certainly is uh, an economic downturn and very likely rising unemployment as some of the government measures that are now in place. are um, are uh, are no longer in place, and also the difficult choices that we will see around the budget in terms of taxation and so on. So we might not have the Brexit divide, but we are likely to have an increasing economic divide. More with the cultural divide we saw with Brexit has not gone away. There will still be questions about what do we do about foreign aid, what do we do about immigration, and so on in new trade deals. So in that sense, while the pandemic, as it was an imminent threat, brought us back together. That doesn't mean that the divisions that partly caused the divisions around Brexit will uh, not come back and haunt us and we will become more polarized again. So I will leave it there and stop sharing here. Thank you.
0: That's great. Thank you very much, Sarah. That was very interesting. It's nice to see the contrast too with the United States. Um, and so at this point, I'll hand it over to Dr. Florian Fos from the Government Department. Go for it.
3: Thanks a lot, Chris, and uh, thanks for having me. Um On the one hand, I I would say I I agree actually with uh, with Sarah Hobolt on on her point that, you know, overall, the big majority of people does support social distancing measures. You know, supports at least in this country the vaccination program, and uh, so we have seen a certain you know extent of consensus really. On important questions of public policy, economic policy would be, would be another one. The support for basically, uh, you know, basically measures to sustain, uh, sustain businesses, also the furlough scheme, for instance. Um, I think one qualification I would make is that, that, that differs between countries. I would say if you, for instance, if you look at support for vaccination in France, um, opinion is much more divided than it is in this country. Um, and I would also say, um, that even though a majority of people agrees, and we don't really have that polarization into kind of two big camps, right? What we have um, is that there is quite a vocal minority, right? I mean, of people who, first of all, you know, disagree with social distancing measures, um, people who who are unhappy about, about the policy, right? I mean, pursued by by the government, um, but also people who are unhappy by uh, with the way policy has been made during the pandemic. Um, so with the democratic and the political process, and um, I can give you an, an example from the country where I was born, Germany, which is um, a lot of, for instance, a lot of uh, decisions in the pandemic have been made um, by the executive, um, basically in a tandem between uh, you know the federal government and and the state prime ministers really, and uh, the legislature had relatively little say in um, in, in COVID, you know based. Policy lockdown policy, for instance. Now that has changed. You know, basically gradually moving forward, but at least there was the beginning at um, at the start of the pandemic, and so there is um, actually quite a bit of skepticism t- towards you know like how democratic, for instance. Uh, decisions are that have been made during the pandemic. And so what what we did, and I also want to show a couple of slides with you, show show you some results of a study that my uh, co-author Alexander Wuttke and I have conducted um, now just in in December and January 2000, uh, December 2020, um, January 2021, uh, where we worked together with um, politicians in Germany of uh, five parties. doing town halls, basically online town halls, like we are today um, on Zoom, where we recruited subjects, or in this case, you know, citizens um, from Facebook. Um, the idea was not to get a representative sample of people, um, but to get basically a sample of people who, um, you know, heterogeneous sample, you have a lot of different opinions, but also people who are dissatisfied, basically with uh, COVID policy, but also with um, the way that decisions on COVID were made in the um, basic basically in Germany, let me just uh, share my slides with you now and so the idea here was that uh, we ran two different types of town halls together collaborating with politicians and representatives. The first type of town hall was um, politicians just went about. Um, the town hall in the way they, they liked. Uh, they would take questions on, on COVID-based policy and interact with uh, citizens attending the town hall. The second time of town hall that politicians ran uh, was based really on democratic processes. And there they emphasized that um, not everything had gone well in the pandemic. and And at first, for instance, there was too much of a focus on basically executive decision-making, but that basically, you know, politicians were working through that and that, you know, basically decision patterns had improved over the pandemic um, you know independent courts had, had assured that um, mistakes that were made were corrected and and basically that you know democracy while it's not perfect but actually um, did lead to you know in the end relatively good outcomes so what you um, what you see here are some results actually of of that study so what you see on in the right panel is always um, our our town hall that focused focused on democracy. We call that democratic talk. And uh, on the left, you see the town hall which we call the control town hall, where you know like in, citizens just interacted with politicians. Um, the outcome here on the y-axis is support for COVID-based restrictions, social distancing distancing measures. And what you see is that if politicians in this town hall here on the right address, you know underlying democratic issues, decision making processes openly, then you actually see an increase in support for those restrictions. Yeah. So, so what, what do we make of that? Uh, first of all, what, what's the effect size? It's about one in 10 people changing their opinion. Opinions in, in, in supporting further restrictions or for, uh, supporting for further social distancing. Um, what do we make of that? Well, some of the opposition. To those measures, not all of it, right? But some of it might be based on opposition to the democratic processes by which, you know, like those or by some of the processes by which those decisions have been arrived at. Um, this is uh, trust in government. Again, the same patterns. Basically, people who attended the town hall were politicians, and I should say that this went on the government politicians as well. It was half of them were basically representing governing parties; the other half were representing opposition parties. Um, but when citizens attended those town halls that addressed democratic processes during the pandemic, trust in government went up, trust in the government's uh, COVID policy and handling of the COVID pandemic. And finally, this is satisfaction with democracy. Again, you see an increase in satisfaction of de- with democracy amongst those people that attended the town hall where politicians explicitly um, ma- made a case for democracy while acknowledging. Some of the uh, you know of the issues that had existed um in the pandemic again, this is data from germany um it's it's a study we, we we just basically conducted finished last month and um yeah, I would look forward obviously to take any questions of that but my takeaway is really that um there is a minority basically of people who are uh, who are unsatisfied um with policy but also with processes. And, and not all of them are lost in that kind of sense, right? I mean, like, not, 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 not all people. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, these, these are all, you know, like they're all really rejecting what is going on, but there are some that are criticizing the processes and, and politicians can actually do something to basically uh, win them over and, um, and win them over on those, um, democratic processes. Thanks. Chris, we can't hear
0: you. Sorry about that. Can you hear me now? Excellent. And this is, of course, very typically what happens during any Zoom call with everyone. Uh, somebody doesn't unmute themselves. Thank you, Florian, uh, for that really hot off the press um, social science research to, to share with our audience. Um, we've come to the fun part of the of the evening. I think um, we have uh, some a, a whole bunch of questions already that have uh, come up through the chat. So. Uh, if it's okay with the panelists, I'm going to get right to it. Um, I think there's a couple of really interesting ones that perhaps uh, Peter can take, and they revolve around um, Trump and Biden. Um, there is a, um, let me see it here, if I can find it really quickly. There's a there's a question from uh, Cordula Reimann from Switzerland who asks about, let me see it really quickly, if I can find it. Um, if we see the corona crisis as an opportunity to overcome um, the, the so polarization, I guess, is, 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 is I think what she's saying. What are Biden's concrete plans to overcome that polarization? Um, what is it that he can do kind of specifically as president to help overcome any kind of polarization? And related to that, there was a question from John Newham, I believe, um, who sort of poses the really interesting hypothetical of if Trump had won, and as you say, he came really close, um, would that have really exacerbated things?
1: So two very good questions. And I invite my panelists to jump in if they, if they want to. um, So one is the counterfactual. So what can Biden do to uh, reduce the level of toxicity in American politics? I think the first thing is he needs to, as I said, he has to get the pandemic under control. He has to demonstrate that government can work, that the federal government can work, And he needs to use this to address some very deep issues in the United States, particularly inequality um, and social justice. But essentially what this really boils down to in terms of what he can do um, is he can use the COVID relief package, which he will do, And there will be an infrastructure package that they will try to push through um, afterwards uh, within the next uh, month to two, uh, which will also be huge. Um, And if they have their way, there'll be a climate um, bill that follows that. That's a lot to get through. These are very, very big price tag um, items. But all of these can be geared to um, building jobs, And the COVID package is. The infrastructure package will definitely be organized that way. So that's the first thing. I would say, although this will raise some partisan tensions in the short run in the United States, Biden needs to do something to ensure that people are enfranchised in terms of voting. There's been a lot of voter disenfranchisement in the United States. And there are bills pending right now that if pushed through, will undo a lot of the damage that actually was done by the Supreme Court and that has been done by at the state level. So those are things I think that kind of longer term would lead to kind of greater buy-in and commitment um, to, um, to, the, to the US government, to the electoral process and so forth. If Trump had been reelected, I think it would have poured additional gasoline on the flames in the United States. But I think we would have seen internationally even more peeling off, clearly just peeling off from the United States. The conclusion that would have been drawn, the issue in Trump's first term was, was he a one-off? or is this the state of things to come? Xenophobia, nativism, nationalism, protectionism in the United States. Merkel framed that question very directly. If he had been reelected, that would have been the answer. He wasn't reelected, but it was close.
3: Sarah, do you want to jump in? If not, yes, yeah, so I um, I think I want to add something to this. So maybe more generally, I think uh, does it matter what, you know, what politicians say or what kind of policies they support? I, I think it does a lot, right? Mm-hmm. I think one reason why we are seeing what, what Sarah Hobart, um basically uh, outlined before, which is a relatively broad consensus, um, is because also, you know, political elites uh, seem to be quite united on, on COVID policy and strategy. That wasn't the case in the beginning of the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, when the government thought about going into a totally different direction, right? But now it seems to be the case that, you know, the Labour Party is supporting a lot of what the government is doing. I mean, even Nigel Farage, right, I mean, has said recently, um, you know, supporting the vaccination strategy of the government. So, you know, it's basically from the extreme left to to really the radical right. you, You see a relative consensus on... The big kind of you know nobody's posing the furlough that, that, that there's a lot of cons- elite consensus and I think that that also triggers down and that's not the case everywhere mm-hmm. in, in in all other countries yeah so, so you have um, obviously the United States would be a good um, a good counterpoint
1: Peter I, I have a two finger on that but I I want to wait if Sarah wants to jump in no so just quickly on this point. Um uh to go back to that Stanford study, which actually reinforces what Sarah showed and what the point that Florian just made, there was a, a, um, initially they tracked it um, kind of um, attitudes, um, effective attitudes over time. And what they showed was that there was originally, initially a rally around the flag effect in the United States too. Um, And so while not exactly unity, there was much less partisanship, and then, post the murder of George Floyd, that dissipated. And so, you know, and partly this is a leadership issue to go to Florian's problem because Trump poured gasoline on that, and um, and so these two issues got like intertwined in a way that jacked everything back up again. I mean, it jacked the polarization up again.
0: Thank you, Peter. I think there's there's some questions here that relate to um, the um, the healthcare system. So um, interestingly, um, there was a question from uh, Ivanka Anand, who is an MSc student in economic history, uh, who is an alumna. I apologize, um, and she asks, "What role do you think the healthcare system plays across these different countries in terms of the different extents to which the publics may have reacted positively or negatively?" Uh, to the to the um, coronavirus, and then perhaps as an add-on uh, for the for, for Sarah too, kind of the extent to which the success of the vaccination program in the UK may help um, assuage any kind of real tendency for for polarization to kind of re-emerge very quickly. Um, what do you guys think?
2: On, on the last point, certainly. Uh, I, I didn't comment on it with the graph, but I, I showed this graph on government approval, where there was this rally around the flag in the UK around uh, the Conservative government and Boris Johnson in the beginning. Then we had the crisis around, you know, the very high death toll, uh, issues around PPE, also issues around whether or not certain government advisors felt they were somehow above uh, you know, were we really all in this together? So there was various kind of scandals and bad news, and that comes back to this point about competence or incompetence. And of course, now what we've seen in the UK yeah. is that the government has uh, and and the NHS has been very successful uh, comparatively, and also, I guess, in all you know, beyond all expectations, I think in terms of the vaccine rollout, and we are seeing that now in government approval figures. Now, the question is, so certainly that is picked up. And it's sort of interesting because if we look in terms of death toll, of course, Britain is still the worst in Europe by quite far. But but nonetheless, people are like, well, at least this is this is um, the government and the, uh, the Conservative Party is still, um, uh, is now quite far ahead or certainly ahead consistently in the polls, which does make me sort of, think back to this point that Peter made, oh, if Trump had, you know, there's also a certain timing in this, that when, you know, there is a, a, the memory in terms of competence that down the line, what will the government be rewarded and punished for? There's a long time until the next election in the UK. And what will maybe be the big question there is not about vaccinations or about death toll, but maybe about the economic recovery. And that then goes to this question of, will the vaccination strategy be the one that polarizes or brings it back together. I mean, I think the very big question that is so hard for us to answer is how is this economic recovery going to to shape out? And also, how is it going to be affecting people differently? We already see deep inequalities in COVID, in terms of who is more, just in terms of morbidities, but also in terms of who professionals like us who can work from home versus people who lose their jobs or who are more exposed in their day to day lives. So there's inequalities there, but there will also be inequalities as we come out of this pandemic and how the government responds to that, I think, would be really crucial in terms of whether or not this is going to be polarizing long term or whether it's going to be a sort of post-second war a uh, second world war moment where there's a where there was a re rebuilding a of the welfare state is there going to be that kind of rebuilding as a nation we're all in it together or is there going to be just exacerbating the deep inequalities that already exist in, in the united kingdom
3: yeah if I come in on the can come in on the question of uh, what if the type of healthcare system matters um, i i think it's 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 not really straightforward. I think at the beginning, it was, I think, less the type, but more like the resources that the healthcare system had and the capacity it had, right? I mean, like, whether it had been funded adequately um, over the past couple of years. Um, so I think once COVID ha- hit, you know, it became relatively clear, you know, like, how many ICU beds there were, right? I mean, like, um, how, how many staff there were, also, like where one staff, for instance, were were no longer able, you know, like basically to attend because they were sick. Um, so I think it was a resource issue and some systems are better resourced than others, and the UK system was not particularly well resourced. Um on the other hand now when I look towards vaccination it's actually interesting right i mean you have the uk on the one hand highly decentralized system uh, obviously um public system you have the us you know highly decentralized private and and they seem both to be doing relatively well when it comes to um, when it comes to vaccinations though i would basically mention the caveat that um the us actually i mean the the vaccination pro- program is really centrally run right i mean like so the the federal government has had like, you know, a huge, um, really, also I think, you know, um, stake, stake in this. So I think states have, you know, as, as, as nations or regions
1: do in the UK, they, they have a say on on what's going on. Um, those are two really interesting responses. Let me just kind of pick up on, um, uh, Florian's last point and, um, and maybe go back to Sarah's in, in, in the U.S. context, um, it is, the, the vaccination program is being run centrally now. <laughs> it, you know, I mean, one, if you go back to the counterfactual, God knows, no one doesn't really know how this would have played out. But it is in the news that broke today about um, uh, Merck uh, working with Johnson & Johnson to actually roll out the vaccine. So this is the one-shot vaccine and this is like almost unprecedented to have two huge pharmaceutical companies cooperating like this. And this was basically done by the White House, has engineered this, this arrangement. Um, so, you know, it it kind of, I think when people see that kind of movement in the United States, it it makes me think that they will think, you know, the healthcare system, It's it's got potential, it's got promise, you know, geez, if it were more kind of centrally directed, you know, and less fragmented and decentralized, maybe that would be a good thing. On the other hand, there's a study out by John Sides and his colleagues, it was just, it came out in November, um, that shows, so one of the th- things the study shows is that partisanship did not decrease because of the uh, because of the pandemic. And so that study is similar to the Stanford study that way. But they also asked questions about attitudes towards uh, healthcare reform and whether Americans would be more amenable to an NHS, a universal care kind of system or Medicare for all, something along those lines. And the answer is it broke down along partisan lines. So I think it's going to still be, if Biden wants to push it in that direction, it's going to be a tough slog in the United States.
0: Can I speak about the tough slog for just a second? So uh, underlying uh, several of the questions that we've had, and we've had a number of really interesting questions, um, underlying these questions is the assumption that polarization is bad. That polarization is a kind of dysfunction. And it's a dysfunction that prevents maybe swift, efficient decision-making, consensual decision-making, and the ability to react to a pandemic in, in, in a way that a democratic society needs to in order to overcome a threat like a pandemic. Um, and so um, Ariatna Schulz asks, um, sort of what will be the impact of polarization to the extent that it exists on recovery, uh, sort of the ability to recover economically Uh, going forward. And related to that, I wanted to ask a question from Han Lin Li, who's an LSE undergraduate who asks about differences between democratic and undemocratic or less democratic country. And specifically, um, they refer to China and the ability to exert control in the face of a pandemic threat. Um, I think uh, most of us on the panel will say we like living in a democracy but with living in a democracy, perhaps comes this risk of of disagreement that we act out openly. And does that get in the way? Um, what do you guys think about that? Who wants to take that one, Sarah?
2: Well, I mean, I'm really interested in this uh, this question of polarization. And as a social scientist, I guess we normally sort of like to define our terms and all these things. And and of course. Um, You know, I think that the kind of polarization that we've talked about can can be damaging, but polarization in terms of living in a democracy and having a range of choice can also be a very good thing. The fact that you can go to the ballot box and you don't just have one party or two parties that say the same thing. And that's ultimately, and that leads to, to the question, it's ultimately also about accountability, that if we have... Uh, Donald Trump, and we think he's incompetent. Otherwise, we, in terms of the handling of the pandemic, we have another choice. So uh, that is also an upshot, you know, that the, having political competition, I think we would generally agree is a very good thing for democracy. And the opposite, like total convergence even, is not necessarily a good thing for democracy. On the other hand, polarization in the way that I hear many of us on this panel having talked about it spills over also in one where also citizens have very entrenched positions and are so deeply steeped in their identification with those positions, for example, being a Democrat or Republican, that it also starts impeding accountability and democracy because, and that that comes then to the question about what does that do for, for recovery? Because it means we can no longer look critically at our own uh, the the party, for example, that we support. So if you are, let's say, a Democrat that is so strong in the belief that only ever the de- Democrats can be the savior and they can only ever do good, it means we stop being critical of anything. For example, Biden would do. Or similarly, if we are strong conservative supporters. So when it's when pol- when political competition and partisanship becomes the kind of polarization where we cannot. We, we dislike the outgroup, the other side so much that we can no longer be critical of our own side, I think then it becomes a problem both for democracy, but also for how we hold politicians to account. Just a very short point on whether or not democracies, and there were a lot of sort of debate about that, could democracies impose the kind of things that we might think that autocratic regimes could do and what has been fascinating, I think, is that if you look at some of the measures that have been uh, imposed in established democracies, basically telling people they will get fined if they say hello to another friend, linger around, if they don't wear a mask, if they get too close. I mean, these are things we could not have could not have imagined a year ago. And people, not only people accepted and comply, line number, they in fact support it. So, I mean, of course, it requires probably more communication to do this in a democracy, but it certainly shows that democratic regimes have amazing capacity to make people follow, uh, you know, go along with things that are quite, that might worry us, and we can talk about that, but it's certainly, there's certainly, democratic regimes certainly have the capacity to do that. Especially when, as florian said, there's a strong consensus elite consensus but also scientific consensus behind it, and when people feel there's a threat
0: thank you peter do you do you have a, an opinion on this
1: i i do but i florian do you um I'm, I'm happy to go or wait
3: just just one thought maybe um i um I think a level of disagreement is important right i mean because Government makes make mistakes. Politicians make mistakes, and some governments make more mistakes than others. And um, they need to be held accountable, right? And um, also in a crisis, as as Trump has been held accountable now now in November. And I I, I thought it was actually concerning that some uh, elections had been postponed, right? I mean, like uh, when when basically the crisis hit and. And there was a debate of uh, on 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 when actually elections would be held again. So I understood, right? I mean, in the very beginning, ju- just given the given the health situation, that this had to be done. But um, but I think it's a good thing, right? I mean, that that we're having elections again. That we're having elections in May, right? I mean, local elections, elections in Western and Scotland, and um, that you know people get to have a say, right? I mean, on this kind of things. So, so yeah, I, I totally agree that this level of debate is important. Um,
1: I I think I I could talk about the first question till the cows come home, but I think I'll focus on the second one in the interest of time, the one, uh, the China-related question. So this is my second pandemic. I was living in Beijing with my family during the SARS pandemic, teaching um, at one of the universities there. And we stayed through the pandemic. Um, And our kids continued to go to school and for a period of time they were out. And there are a couple things about the Chinese response then and more recently in this pandemic that I think stand out for me. Um, uh, you know, kudos to to them when they finally get their act together. Um, they know how to kind of snuff it out pretty fast. It was impressive when all the universities went into lockdown back in 2003, um, and and the way that they dealt with it. But one of the problems with a system like that is that <clears throat> when you have lack of transparency, um, it's on the front end. It took a long time to find out that there was a problem. And then it took a long time to do something about it. And there was a lot of kind of blame avoidance and blame go- game, uh, uh, you know, a blame attribution going on between the central government and the local governments and it really slowed things down. And so the problem ended up being much worse than it needed to be, and that it probably would have been in a more open um, uh, democratic society. One other thing to just say here, um, as a, a, we should remember that plenty of democracies have done a pretty good job with this. New Zealand, Australia, not too bad, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, there's a pretty long list. It's true also that Singapore has done a good job and you know, kind of controlling it and China and, and even in, in the European context, some of the more populist, if you will, authoritarian states. But it's, it's a very mixed story. And I think it's way too early to draw broad generalizations.
0: That's a very good point. And and I think one of the wonderful things about having an event like the LSE Festival is that we can kind of talk about current events uh, as they happen sort of right on the fly. But I think you're absolutely right in saying we have to say this as social scientists, is that uh, we we need to collect a lot more evidence to draw strong conclusions about what's happening in the world. There's two types of questions here that I really want to get to before the end of the event. And one of them is a more local question, and one of them is a more global question. The more local question comes from uh, Charlie Duffield, who asks, it's been reported that there's been a huge upsurge in people volunteering and helping their local communities. What is the psychological reason or motivation for this? And do you think this will continue or will it just go away and subside when the pandemic subsides? Um, What do our experts think about that? And then I have a global question to follow up on that. I think this one goes to Florian immediately. When I saw that question, I thought, I want to hear what Florian has to say about this.
1: (laughs) got Florian written all over (laughs)
0: it. So I... I think there are
3: two you know two aspects to this i um if we think about you know like why people volunteer or what motivates them to volunteer um one of them is resources as well right and and people had more time um they had more time because they weren't further, they stayed home uh, you know people basically um also had to i think look for something meaningful to do right i mean doing um during lockdown, um, especially those of you who might, you know, not have kids and, you know, like be busy basically uh, otherwise um, or carrying responsibilities. Um, and so I think that might have contributed to that. But on the other hand, it's also obviously pe- people are impacted, right? I mean, like, you know, they they will know people, especially if you live in the UK. I think that also differs quite a bit across country. I mean, we we have seen really high death toll rates. Uh, you know, we, we, we have seen... Um, lots of people going to hospital, um, so you probably know somebody, or you know somebody who knows somebody, basically who has been affected. And I think that that might have really, um, you know, stimulated people to to get active and to to contribute, even you know, at the very kind of local level and on a on a smaller scale, you know, helping neighbours, delivering groceries for people. This kind of things so like mutual aids have sprung up all over all over South London, for instance, where I live. Um, so, um, but, but I think that also depends a little bit on, on actually how I would imagine it's my hypothesis. I haven't tested it empirically, but, um, on how, how hard the country or a region was, was hit and how many people you actually also know that, that would need help. So that there's two aspects to time on the one hand and then basically the motivation coming from like being impacted or knowing people who are impacted. But
0: let me follow up on it. Do you think it's going to go away as, as things get better, as the economy recovers, as inequalities perhaps uh, among people who are ill and not so ill or affected by the pandemic and not affected by the pandemic, for instance, with regard to having children in school and so on? If Once that kind of peters out, uh, will we see these mutual aid societies that you describe seeing in South London? Will that just poof, disappear?
3: I would hope not. Right. I mean, I, I think on the one hand, once you have started doing something, you are probably more likely to keep doing it, especially maybe if you have met friends, right. Or now, you know, your neighbors, I, I'm actually kind of came to get to know more of my neighbors just locally. Right. I mean, uh, even though we weren't able to kind of mix, but you know, you just walk by or, um, there's a WhatsApp group now where I live basically in the house. Um, so I think these kind of things, like personal connections, sustain volunteering. Um And, you know, once you you have tried it, I think there's also a threshold, right, of entry. So often people were too busy or, you know, they thought they were too busy to do this kind of things. But once you have tried it, maybe you like it, right, and you continue doing that. So I think some of it will go away because people will, you know, people's life will change and they will normalize to some extent. But I think not all
0: of it. Go for it, Peter. And I, I do want to get to the global question, so make okay, it quick. I'm to just
1: be very fast, quick on this, because I don't know the answer. I mean, I think what Florian had to say is very interesting for, you know, I, I think, um, it, I mean, this is an area that would really be worth researching and spending time on. And you could do this by looking at responses to natural disasters like tornadoes in the U.S. or hurricanes or, you know. I mean, um, typhoons elsewhere to see, because my guess is, is that the responses, um, the extent to which that community level response lasts probably varies and under different kinds of conditions that have to do with the existing community infrastructure, you know, uh, maybe the role of federal governments. I'm not sure, but I think, I know we have a lot of, um, uh, government BSc students on here. This would be a really interesting thing to do. Re- do a, a, a dissertation on um, to research it. Um, I think.
3: Yeah, I think I couldn't agree more. Um, and also, it's a great idea, right? I mean, like looking at. I mean, the, the pandemic still is to some extent extraordinary because of just just the time it lasted. Right? It's still lasting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so, so a lot of these, uh, and everybody is kind of impacted, right? right? I mean, by by that, it's not localized in that sense. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, um, there have been, I think, think about Katrina, right? I mean, in the in the United States, for instance, and um, and those communities, uh, basically Saint Louis and no, sorry, um, Saint Orleans, that has that have been impacted there. Um, I would would imagine that. I mean, it's definitely testable whether there have been, you know, volunteering has sprung up and it has been sustained
0: um, into the future. Speaking of it affecting everyone, right, the pandemic having affected uh, everyone on this planet. Of course, the immediate flip side of that coin that I just asked Florian is, has this pandemic polarized us globally or has has it brought us together in some important way? Um, I think that's a really fitting question to ask at the very end here. Sarah, do you have a do you have a view on that?
2: Well, it certainly hasn't. I mean, I wouldn't say it's poll. I mean, one, on the one hand, it's something that affects all of us, and in a way, we're all in the same boat. So it should have brought us together because we know that given how globalized the world is, if someone has it in China or in New Zealand or in Russia, it can affect us. If a new variant develops in Brazil or in Kent, it can affect someone else. So it should have brought us together. But has it? I don't think if we look at the vaccination rollout as it's happening or in the way in which the rich developed world is buying all these vaccines and how slow it has been in terms of rolling out elsewhere in developing countries. So far, there's not a lot of evidence that it has meant that people are really sort of looking at this, that governments are looking at this as a global problem. I think still most of the solutions have been done very much as a national problem. And of course, that comes back to the question of democracy. We already talked about politicians want to be reelected by their voters. So even though... As a virus that's global and where we should have looked to global solutions i don't I'm not seeing that i mean again, Peter is really the expert here, but from where I'm standing, it's still politicians appealing to their own voters on a very local basis rather than this bringing us together globally
0: Peter, what do you think
1: um, i I'll give, I'll
0: give you the last word on this. Uh,
1: well. I'll be fast maybe oh well um so i i think um i don't really disagree with what sarah said i think the verdict is still out i mean the initial response has not been very uplifting there's been a lot of nationalism the drawbridges went up um you know kind of a lot of pandemic nationalism Um, but it's still in a sense early and there is Evidence of a kind of a change going on. We see it with China. We actually see it with Russia in the, in moving um, at France uh, most recently in making uh, the vaccine um, available. And I think we're beginning to see movement in the United States. This takes leadership, and you know one has to just hope that with time a lot of the advanced industrialized nations will really kind of begin to get their act together on this.
0: I think that is a very fitting ending to a really, really interesting discussion. It's been a great pleasure to have the opportunity uh, to listen to you guys debate these issues. Uh, but I think for all of you, all of you listening here today to listen to Peter and Florian. So thank you very much for taking part. Um, we're really grateful you found the time to participate given the busy schedules I know you all have. Um, everyone listening, please make sure you check out the festival program. Uh, we have a wonderful series of live and pre-recorded events taking place. See you next time.
1: All right. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, everybody. Good to Thank be with you. you. Bye. Thank
0: you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.